will definitely expand, but Ethereum was the clearly first choice to deploy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as the senior editor of Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 11th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Arbitrum's leading layer two scaling solution offers you ultra cheap and lightning fast transactions, all with security rooted on Ethereum. Visit Arbitrum.io today. Today's episode is brought to you by Overtime Markets, your premier Web3 sportsbook. The innovative protocol is changing the game one match at a time. Powered by Thales, explore more at OvertimeMarkets.xyz. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, trade, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Jose Fernandez de Ponte, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Blockchain, Crypto, and Digital Currencies at PayPal. Welcome, Jose. Hello, Laura. This week, PayPal launched a stablecoin on Ethereum, PYUSD. What is PayPal's vision for PYUSD and how it will be used? Uh, well, we have been active in crypto now for about the last four years. And the vision for the whole of PayPal has always been to be that conduit between fiat and, and Web3 that can bring a mainstream adoption to the system for payments. We are a payments company and we really uh, care about the payments applications. And the launch of PYUSD is the natural evolution of, of that journey. We started with enabling that in the app, with traditional crypto tokens, then we, we moved to on-chain transfers, we moved to international, and adding now a fully backed and regulated stable instrument of value that can be used for payments is the culmination of that of that first phase. We do think that stable coins are the killer application for blockchains right now, and they are very close to the, the payments market that we care so much about. And so how do you expect it will be used? Like which sectors do you think will, I mean, is it just simple payments that you see it being used in? Like, do you see it being used in, for instance, DeFi? Uh, so we, we do believe that the, the primitives of digital currency are very well suited for payments. I think there are inherent advantages that have to do with, with cost, that have to do with programmability, that have to do with settlement time. Interestingly, many of the conversations focus on, on the cost per transaction, and I'm even more interested in the settlement time. Uh, we tend to say that they are faster and cheaper, but when you're in payments, faster is cheaper, and that settlement time advantage is, is very relevant. We also think that it will take time and that the revolution will not happen uh, overnight. We think that we are a few years away from a mainstream use of stablecoins in day-to-day -day payments. Uh, but there are sectors that are very ripe for that use right now. Obviously, there are 122 billion in a stablecoin today that mostly happen on crypto trading and Web3 use cases, including DeFi, as you were saying. And we do expect that PYUSD will be used there. 
And we see some early cases like remittances, which is one place where we have a ton of interest. PayPal has been active in remittances for a long time through a company that we acquired a few years ago called Zoom. So we do have a right to play in, in that space. And the convergence between remittances and digital currencies has been already underway. There is another space in B2B payments where we are seeing increasing adoption of stablecoins because if you think about it, it makes a ton of sense. If you're a company that is exporting to a foreign country and you want to receive payments as opposed to getting receiving a wire that will take three or five days to clear, that again, that instant settlement time is really, really powerful. And probably the fourth segment outside of crypto that we think will adopt stablecoins first is digital goods. If you think like in economies like places like Minecraft or Roblox, places where there are about $100 billion in digital goods that get transacted every year. If you're a developer selling the digital goods in a, in a game with the current payment setup, it can take you 15 days to get your, the, your money. So if you can do something that is in-game, digitally native, and with instant settlement, there are very clear advantages there. Again, I think that we are still a few years away from mainstream use cases for a domestic e-commerce or, or retail, but there are very large uh, commerce pools that are already available for stablecoins. And so it seems like you're saying that then DeFi would be even further out. Is that? I think that DeFi will be part of the of the first wave in the sense that we want to go where crypto users are today using stablecoins and DeFi is a use case for that. Uh, as of today, you can only get a PYUSD on the PayPal wallet. We are ramping up the, the product, but definitely the intention is that it will be available in, in main exchanges. And when that distribution is available, then folks will be able to use it for the traditional use cases around crypto. And the press release said that PYUSD can be sent to, quote, compatible external wallets. And I wondered, just because I'm sure you're aware, there's been some potential uh, regulation banning transactions to self-hosted wallets. But I wanted to just check, is that does that include self-hosted wallets that, you know, people it can does. send their... It does. The, okay. the comment on, on compatible is uh, the stable PYUSD is, the, is an ERC-20 token. So it's deployed on, on the Ethereum blockchain and it can be sent outside to, to wallets that enable ERC-20 tokens. That's the meaning of that, compatible. And I believe that some of the user terms say that PayPal can roll back transactions, but I imagine that only applies to certain ones, such as within the PayPal slash Venmo system. Uh, I don't know which uh, exactly which uh, reference you're making, but there are, there are transactions that there is definitely an aspect of it that has to do with being a fully backed and regulated a, a stable coin, as you know, we are a, issued out of New York. Paxos is the issuer and the token is approved by New York DFS. And New York has very clear and strict requirements in terms of KYC and anti-money laundering provisions that require the ability to be able to have the right controls in place. Already, there are a number of stable coins that are quite popular that are designed quite similarly to PYUSD, such as Tether and USDC. So how do you plan to differentiate PYUSD from those and any other similarly designed stable coins? Yeah, I think that there are a few different things there that, that make a PYUSD a, a very strong value proposition. The first one is obviously the, the PayPal ecosystem. So PYUSD is the only stablecoin that is accepted in the PayPal ecosystem. That includes PayPal now, but will include a very soon Venmo as well and gives access to our two-sided network. So there are millions of consumers and merchants that will be able to get access to it. 
and it will be able to be used as a funding instrument for PayPal transactions, meaning that if you are purchasing at millions of merchants uh, that accept PayPal today, and you have a balance of PYUSD with you, and you want to use PYUSD as your uh, funding instrument, you can pay today with, with your stablecoin balance, which is something that I don't think anybody else can do. The second one has to do with connectivity to fiat. By virtue of being accepted on the PayPal side, it leverages the, the bank connectivity that we have built over the years. As you know, moving from fiat to a stablecoin is a clunky process that sometimes involves that you move from your wallet to an exchange, and then you have to pay fees, and then you have to withdraw, and it takes days. By virtue of being supported on PayPal, you can move your POSD balance, you can sell it, move it to PayPal balance, and withdraw to your bank account. And that's something that we think is an, in an inherent advantage, both for on-ramps and off-ramps. And the third one, I would say, is, is a compliance regulation. So issued by a New York trust, and it leveraged the 20 years of experience that we have in, in addressing and preventing fraud and, and financial crime online. Yeah, so speaking of regulation, at this moment, stablecoin legislation has, for the first time, cleared the initial committee stage in the House of Representatives. And I wondered, is the timing of your launch coincidental or, um, you know, did that give you some vote of confidence to launch now? We have been following the legislative process for for a long while. I agree with you. I think it's fantastic that we're seeing traction there and that those uh, those bills are being uh, discussed. There are obviously still differences between the, the parties on, on the legislation that it would see, but that is the democratic process and that is what should happen in, in Congress. Uh, in general, I wouldn't point specifically to those bills being passed out of committee as, as a trigger for our launch. The, there is a macro trend of clarity around the stablecoins that is happening in the world. It is. It was MICA in Europe a few months ago. It is the UK, Japan, Singapore. There are many markets where there are clear uh, regulations around stablecoins, and it's fantastic to see that the US is, is getting there. Uh, but also there is a framework in place today. We, we care a lot about a strict and, and robust frameworks, and that's the reason we went to New York, because that's the most robust and strict and rigorous framework for stablecoins that is available in the land today. So in a moment, we're going to talk more about regulation. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Overtime Markets is your premier Web3 sportsbook. Overtime is an industry-leading Web3 protocol where users can immerse themselves in the thrilling world of sports. Leveraging the benefits of decentralization and blockchain technology, Overtime leads the charge in innovation, all the while offering fans juicy token rewards for sports events. Overtime supports over 40 leagues and utilizes advanced smart contracts to ensure a seamless user experience. Discover the future of sports trading at OvertimeMarkets.xyz. Arbitrum stands at the forefront of innovation as the premier suite of Layer 2 scaling solutions, bringing you lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all with security rooted on Ethereum. From DeFi to gaming, Arbitrum 1 plus Nova is home to over 500 projects. And with the recent launch of Orbit, Arbitrum welcomes you to build your very own tailor-made Layer 3, or an Orbit chain. Propel your project and community forward by visiting Arbitrum.io today. Back to my conversation with Jose. On Wednesday, House Representative Maxine Waters released a statement saying, quote, that she's deeply concerned that PayPal has chosen to launch its own stablecoin while there is still no federal framework for regulation, oversight, and enforcement of these assets. What's your response to that? I, I obviously saw the statement from the ranking member. I understand from 
her letter that her main point is that she will want to see legislation that has that gives federal oversight over stablecoins. As we were just saying, that is a debate that is going on in, in Congress. There are other parties, so both uh, in, in Congress, there are other members, both Republican and Democrat, that have different view and favor a, a state path. That is part of the legislative process. We are very supportive of legislation being passed. We are now regulated by, by New York that, that, as I said, that's the most strict framework that is that is in place. We, we will observe and obviously we will comply with any legislation that emanates from Congress when, when that happens. And does PayPal have an opinion on whether they think that federal oversight is necessary or that state regulation of stablecoins is sufficient? We do. We are a payments company, and payments are regulated in this country at the state level. I think that different places uh, do that in different ways. If you look at, for instance, some places like, like MICA, MICA has a very clear definition of payment stablecoins. And in our sense, if stablecoins are related to a payment activity, it makes sense that, that fit inside the, the payments framework, which today is, is regulated at the state level. Back a few years ago, Libra was an effort by the company then known as Facebook, now Meta, to create a stablecoin of sorts. It wasn't directly tied to the value of the U.S. dollar. But I wondered how the company's failure, largely for regulatory reasons, influenced PayPal's approach to this launch. I don't know. We, we were, of course, uh, close to the conversations on Libra. It was four years ago uh, already. But I don't think that it has informed our approach in the sense that we are continuing to do uh, our evolution in the sector in the same way that we conduct the rest of our business. We are a tech company, but we are also a regulated financial institution, and we have been for 20 years. Our approach has always been regulatory first, and sometimes means that we might move slower than, than others, but we care a lot about the regulatory and compliance frameworks, and we care a lot about our regulatory relations. We are active, as we have said in the past, in 200 countries, and we are one of the few institutions who, who do that. And we always said well, in our explorations of the space that we will always be doing this in coordination with regulators. So I don't think it's a consequence of Libra. It's just our DNA, our DNA and who we are. And you're starting the launch in the U.S. How do you plan to roll it out to the rest of the world? And if so, will you be launching stablecoins that are pegged to other fiat currencies? So the, the plan today is we are live in, on the PayPal wallet. The, I'm, I'm looking at the next peak, and the next peak is enabling that on the Venmo wallet. So it still be largely uh, US-based. US uh, we will think about international expansion. We have not put thought yet on, on any other local currency denominated stablecoins. The priority now is just to make this launch successful and make it useful for the crypto ecosystem. But I'm sure you must have a sense of whether or not you plan to launch, for instance, a, a, a euro stablecoin or a British pound stablecoin. Or... We, we don't have plans now. We don't have in, in our roadmap anything that is a, a currency now that is different than the dollar. Okay. And you'll be publishing a monthly reserves report. What will that look like? And will it also be showing proof of reserves? Paxos will be issuing that. Paxos is the issuer of, of the token, and they are the ones as part of the New York uh, framework. There is a requirement that it has to be a periodic uh, attestation. So it will be similar to what you can see today already for other stablecoins that are issued by Paxos, like USDP and, and others. And basically means that you will be able to see an attestation that is verified by a, by a third party where you can see the amount of the reserves and also the composition of, of uh, those reserves. 
but it won't be something where like there will be identifiable addresses where people can use some function to attest that their own coins are still held in reserve, nothing like that. I know. I think that the best way to to look at that for the interested party is go to the Paxos website today and those reports are available for other stable coins and you can see exactly what you're going to be seeing on our side. So as you mentioned earlier, um, PayPal wants to focus on some digitally native environments such as online gaming. Just to my mind, I could be wrong, that seems like a different user base from PayPal's existing user base. And so I wondered how you planned to appeal to them. So and just to qualify, when we say online gaming, we talk, we're thinking about video games. Sometimes people think that that has to do with uh, real money uh, gaming or something like that. I'm deeply, deeply interested in, in the video game industry for payments. If you think about video games, sometimes uh, for the external observer, they get dismissed as something that is uh, 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 just for a younger demographic. When you look at it, actually, the demographic of uh, video games is very much the demographic of the general population. It's a very, very large industry and has very, very hard and constraining computing requirements. If you think of in terms of difficult technical problems to solve, millions of concurrent users on instantly rendered environments is a very, very tricky computing uh, problem. And many computing innovations happen in video games first. And I think that a lot of the innovation in payments will happen in video games first. When we think of Payment use cases that you cannot do today and that could be enabled by stablecoins are things like streaming payments. So can you be watching a video clip where you are paying by the second or paying by the minute as, as opposed to paying for the for the full thing? Or can you buy digital goods on an in-game environment and then you can take with, with you? I think that we have seen a very exciting experiments in which you have NPCs or non-playing characters, a, AI agents inside a game that can be attached to a wallet carrying a value with it. And then that autonomous agent inside a game can go and buy and sell stuff inside the game. Those are things that you cannot think of if you're trying to figure out on a whiteboard what are the use cases. You just need to put a platform product out there and then developers will build on top of it. And so I think, to my mind, this would... Um, be one of the reasons why PayPal decided to design PYUSD as an ERC-20 token. It sounds like there's kind of plans in the works for smart contracts, like other things that enable more programmability with the money. Yeah, at the very beginning of of the process, we we had to think, hey, we're going to go to open uh, source protocols and, and traditional permissionless environments, or do we want to do something that is proprietary? And we very quickly went the the open way because as we have said in the past we we believe that you follow developers you don't tell developers what to do they tell you what to do and and it was a very clear decision to go to ethereum because the developer community was already there the way that pyusd was designed is to be uh, multi-chain so there is absolutely no reason why we would not do uh, other protocols later or other layers on, on the same protocols later Ethereum has many advantages, also has obviously higher fees than some other protocols that for some use cases, like we said, in terms of micropayments or or high speed, high throughput could be expensive. So we will definitely expand from there. But Ethereum was the clearly first uh, choice to deploy. And this definitely opens up a new line of, um, of revenue for PayPal. Um, first of all, obviously, PayPal could make money from the deposits, especially if you're 
holding it in something like treasuries. Um, and then there's also the fees, which I believe are, is it 1.5% for depositing or transacting? So there are several ways. Uh, traditionally, the monetization mechanism of, for stablecoins has been monetizing the yield of the of the reserves. That's That has been historically there. And obviously in this interest rate environment, it has been a sizable a size of uh, a sizable source of profit for the industry, and that's fine. We don't think that we should foresee that that's going to be the only monetization mechanism, or that in the interesting environments might might change. So we are what we are betting is that when there is adoption for these stable coins, that we will monetize that with instruments that are closer to the traditional payment business. Meaning that when there are merchants who want to accept settlement in, in stable coin then there would be a merchant discount uh, rate that, that they will pay, that people might move from uh, stablecoins uh, in one currency to other types, and then there might be a fee associated to, to that. Today, to your question on, on fees, we don't charge fees for the, for the purchase of a PYUSD on the PayPal app, and we don't charge fees for the sale of PYUSD. So you can buy $1 to $1 and there are no fees involved. You can sell $1, you receive $1 in your PayPal balance. There is no fees. You can transfer them out. The only fee that you pay is the, is the network fee, is what the Ethereum protocol will require you to, to pay. We are not charging any PayPal fees on those transfers either. Oh, okay. Okay. I um, misheard something then somewhere. We do charge for the other crypto that you can buy on the PayPal ecosystem. We do charge a, a transaction fee, but not for a stablecoin. Okay. And so just going back to, you know, when I asked about the um, lines of revenue for PayPal, you know, how big does PayPal see this potential line of business becoming? We, we think that it can be in the very long term, uh, in the long term, very relevant but our but our expectations for the next year are are moderate. It's interesting because the this tends to be a very polarizing environment. There is proof of existence, right? So there is 120 billion of stablecoin out there, and we expect that we will capture a market share there. But we also expect that we will help enlarge the the, the pie. It's interesting because I saw a, a report. I think it was a, an analyst report a couple of days ago that were saying that stablecoins will go from 122 billion today to 2.8 trillion in five years. That is a lot. So that is a 22x increase in, in five years. Obviously, if that happens, this becomes very, very relevant. But if you ask me, I believe that this is a multi-year play. Uh, we want to walk uh, before we, we run. It is important that we get adoption in the right way in these use cases. And the growth, I believe, it will happen. But we're in this for the, for the long game, and it's going to be a multi-year journey. And in the app, how will it be presented or how is it being presented to people? Um, is it just another option amongst all their payment options or is there any kind of incentive for them to try to use it or to try to you know, obtain some? So it is uh, shown in two different places. The first one is when you go to the app, uh, there is a crypto section of the app and you will see that as one additional token. So you will see on the tokens that we support, you will see Bitcoin and Ethereum. Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash, and you will see PYUSD as well, and you can buy it and sell it and transfer to external wallets from there. And then when you are in a checkout transaction, we are big believers in choice for our uh, consumers, so we are not predefining how we're, we're not steering them toward any specific payment method. So we will it will appear as another payment option, option but it will not be 
given more preponderance at checkout. If you have decided that you want to use PayPal and pay with your credit card, then your credit card will be shown first and the others will be shown after that, uh, with PYUSD being one of those. All right. Well, this has been a very fascinating discussion. Is there anything I didn't ask you about PYUSD that you'd like to mention? I think that, as I said at the beginning, we do believe that stablecoins are, are the killer app for these, that the advantages in terms of settlement time and, and cost and speed are, are very important. I believe that it's going to take a while for mainstream adoption in, in payments. So we are, we are taking a, a crypto-first approach and then starting to explore some of the retail cases. And I do believe we were talking about competition. I do believe that we will definitely be taking some market share there. But I also believe that there is a ton of appetite in the market for additional stable coins that are fully back and regulated. And, pro and hopefully this is a, a good move for the industry in general. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Today, presented by veteran crypto reporter and Columbia University Knight Badgett fellow, Michael Del Castillo. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 5% cash back instantly. Plus, 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, just a quick note before today's recap that I need to take a bit of a health sabbatical. So Michael Del Castillo will be filling in for me on the weekly recaps during that time. I'm so grateful to Michael that he could do this and I'm sure you'll love him. Now over to Michael. Hello and thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. This week, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission announced its intention to appeal a partial defeat in its ongoing case against Ripple Labs. The regulator will seek an interlocutory appeal meaning the rest of the case will continue as planned, specifically targeting the part of the decision related to the sales of XRP on exchanges and other distributions, including offers and sales of XRP using algorithms, also known as programmatic sales. In July, Judge Annalisa Torres ruled that some of Ripple's programmatic sales did not violate securities laws, while direct sales to institutional investors were in fact securities. In a letter to the judge overseeing the case, SEC Deputy Chief of Crypto Assets Jorge Tenrero argued that the review happening at the same time as the case would, quote, advance the termination of this litigation in an efficient manner, which is lawyers speak for not waste any time. Tenrero proposed that Ripple should have until August 16 to respond, with the SEC filing an opening brief two days later. Gary DeWall, senior counsel at the Catton Law Firm, told crypto news site The Block that it, quote, would not be surprising if Ripple makes a similar request, end quote, regarding institutional sales. The appeal process 
requires approval from the United States District Court, Southern District of New York, and the Court of Appeals, followed by permission from the Second Circuit. In a week filled with legal developments surrounding the crypto exchange FTX, former co-CEO Ryan Salome is negotiating a guilty plea with federal prosecutors for alleged offenses including campaign finance law violations, according to a Bloomberg report. It's unclear whether or not Salome's plea could involve testimony against former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, whose criminal trial is set for October. Bankman-Fried himself faces legal challenges. In a letter on August 8, the Department of Justice confirmed Bankman-Fried will face campaign finance-related charges, and Sino Global Capital, a crypto VC, has filed a $67 million claim against FTX and sister company Alameda. A federal judge has set a hearing for August 11 to consider revoking Bankman-Fried's bail, potentially moving him from house arrest to jail in New York. Adding to the complexity, the New York Times and separately Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe have argued that Sam Bankman-Fried's gag order should be lifted, according to a report by The Block over the weekend. In an affidavit dated August 1, Tried argued that Bankman-Fried has a constitutional right to speak to the media, stating, quote, The order effectively precludes Mr. Bankman-Fried from saying anything that might influence the public's perception of him in ways that could help make the presumption of his innocence more than a slogan, end quote. In an August 2 letter, the deputy general counsel for the Times, David McGraw, also opposed the gag order, citing public interest and First Amendment rights. The crypto community is closely watching the SEC as it reviews applications for spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds, or ETFs. CEO of Galaxy Digital, Mike Novogratz, reportedly expressed optimism on an earning call, stating that approval is a question of, quote, when, not if, end quote, and that he expects a decision within six months. Investment managers BlackRock and Invesco have amended their filings to include surveillance sharing agreements with Coinbase, a move seen as crucial for approval. Meanwhile, CEO of ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, anticipates another delay for ARK's proposed spot Bitcoin ETF, optimistically suggesting that the SEC may approve multiple ETFs simultaneously. Though, of course, another possibility is the latest batch of Bitcoin spot ETF applications gets shot down just like all the others. GlobalX has also refiled its application, marking the ninth active spot Bitcoin application. The anticipation has triggered cautions, excitement, and speculation, with decisions expected as soon as this week. However, nonprofit markets watchdog Better Markets urged the SEC to reject spot Bitcoin ETF applications, citing ongoing concerns about investor harm and potential criminal activities. Elsewhere, the U.S. Federal Reserve has unveiled a new supervision program to oversee banks engaged with crypto assets and any of a variety of distributed ledger technologies, including blockchain, according to a statement from the Central Bank's Board of Governors. The program will be integrated into the existing supervisory process with experts designated to work with banks involved in these, quote, novel activities. The degree of supervision will be risk-based, presumably meaning the more contact with crypto, the more requirements, and certain banks will be routinely monitored depending on their engagement level. State banks wishing to venture into dollar token or stablecoin activity 
must receive written non-objection from the Federal Reserve. The central bank's guidance emphasizes the need for appropriate risk management, including systems to identify and monitor potential risks, such as cybersecurity and illicit finance threats. While some on social media have portrayed the program as, quote, legitimizing the technology, by now it should be clear to anyone who has been paying attention to similar programs announced by the SEC over the years that having a path to compliance is no guarantee of approval. MakerDAO's decentralized DAI liquidity market, Spark Protocol, has restricted access to U.S.-based users and, just in case, anyone else using a virtual private network, or VPN, to cover their tracks, sparking criticism from privacy advocates. The move coincides with the implementation of an enhanced DAI savings rate, or EDSR, temporarily raising the DAI savings rate, DSR, to 8% in order to incentivize higher participation. MakerDAO founder Runa Christensen has since proposed reducing the EDSR to a maximum value of only 5%, though still higher than the original amount, citing unintended consequences of the rate being exploited by large-scale Ethereum whales. The proposal also aims to ensure the EDSR benefits regular DAI users rather than just the richest investors. The changes in the DAI savings rate and the VPN blockade have ignited debates on the sustainability of such an offer, concerns about the decentralization of the matter, and the balance between profit and principle within the crypto community. WorldCoin, the eyeball-scanning crypto project launched by OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, has faced a series of challenges this week. Following the Kenyan government's suspension of the company's activities to assess the legality and data protection, Nairobi police raided a WorldCoin warehouse, seizing documents and machines for examination, according to Kenyan news site Kahawa Tungo. Kenya's Office of Data Protection Commissioner Immaculate Cassate told local news site KTN News that her team had asked WorldCoin parent company Tools for Humanity to stop collecting personal information in May. Meanwhile, in Bavaria, Germany, the Data Protection Authority said it was still reviewing the project when it went live. On Monday, WorldCoin's mobile app also experienced some technical difficulties, limiting users' access to wallets, with the support team attributing the issue to, quote, higher than usual traffic. In New York, the Attorney General of New York is probing Digital Currency Group, or DCG, over its financial dealings with its subsidiary Genesis Global Capital, according to a Bloomberg report. The investigation, which has not been officially confirmed at the time of the report, is said to focus on loans and transactions between DCG and Genesis, including a $575 million loan accepted by DCG from Genesis last year. The New York Attorney General's office, led by Attorney General Letitia James, is reportedly also concerned about the $1.1 billion promissory note declared by DCG CEO Barry Silbert. The probe is part of a broader examination into crypto lending, raising questions about consumer protection, market manipulation, and systemic risk. While no formal complaints have been issued, the SEC and federal prosecutors are also reportedly examining the firm. DCG told Bloomberg it is working with regulators and investigators, emphasizing that the transactions were conducted according to standard market procedures. 
Crypto exchange Huobi has been embroiled in controversy this week as rumors of insolvency and police investigations circulate. Data from Nansen shows over $40 million worth of outflows from the exchange in the last week, with total value locked dropping to $2.5 billion. The outflows followed social media posts claiming that senior executives were being arrested by Chinese police and allegations of money laundering involving Huobi and Tron founder Justin Sun. Analyst Adam Cochran claims Huobi is likely insolvent, pointing to a rapid sell-off of the stablecoin USDT and a discrepancy in the stablecoin's reserves. Huobi's head of social media, on the other hand, said, quote, This malicious rumor has been confirmed untrue and Huobi is currently doing well, end quote. Despite the denial, the situation led to a sizable drop in Huobi Global's stablecoin exchange balance in the past week. On Tuesday, an address reportedly related to Sun transferred 200 million USDT and 5,000 ETH into Huobi, though a Huobi spokesperson denied Sun's link to the addresses. The unfolding situation has raised concerns and debates within the crypto community. OPNX, a digital asset exchange founded by the creators of the defunct hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, or 3AC, has bid to acquire the bankrupt crypto lender Hodelnot. The offer includes a $30 million capital injection of OPNX's native Flex tokens, which would result in OPNX owning 75% of Hodelnot. Flex, however, is one of two tokens associated with OPNX, which was originally named GTX after its similarities to the defunct FTX. The bid comes not only as Hodelnot's restructuring plan comes under court supervision in Singapore, but as U.S. courts seek a response from 3AC co-founder Kyle Davies. Curve Finance, the decentralized finance platform that lost over $60 million in a recent exploit, has opened a $1.85 million bounty to the public to identify the hacker. After the hacker partially returned stolen funds to other affected protocols but not to Curve, the platform extended the bounty, initially offered only to the hacker, to anyone who could lead to a conviction. The hacker had previously written, quote, I'm refunding not because you can find me. It's because I don't want to ruin your project. Anyone looking for a laugh today, something a little on the lighter side, should tune in to hear stand-up comedian Ginny Hogan elucidate Elon Musk, confirming there will be no cryptocurrency for X, formerly known as Twitter. That's all for this week. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Prominent Dogecoin accounts are warning people to be wary of news that Twitter slash X is launching its own cryptocurrency. Elon has said he's never going to launch one, so these stories are all fake, which should be obvious from the fact that they have about 50,000 likes on X.com. Actually, though, Elon didn't say I'll never launch an X token. He said we'll never launch an X token, which is really inspiring. I didn't realize there were still people working at X. Honestly, I also think the news of no X token itself is promising. Maybe Elon plans on shutting down the whole site. Why doesn't Elon want X to have its own cryptocurrency? Well, not to brag, but the website, formerly known as Twitter, actually doesn't need to get into crypto to lose a ton of money. Elon is also enmeshed in a multi-million dollar insider trading lawsuit over the time that he changed the Twitter logo to the Dogecoin Shiba Inu dog. Investors have accused Musk of doing it deliberately to drive up the price of Dogecoin 36,000% and then let it crash. Well, he has a real pattern. That's exactly what he did with Twitter, except for the part where he drove the price up. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with up from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Ginny Hogan, Leandra Camino, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and Market Curia. Thanks for listening.